It's time to play like a jet with your host, Scott Mason. Play like a jet. What does that mean? Drops the throw, steps up, floats a bomb up the right seam, looking for Anderson. He's got it. They're not going to catch him. He's going to go the distance. Touchdown. Sam Darnold dials it up to Robbie Anderson. 92 yards. Bell into the middle of that line, and it's a touchdown. Big return for Crowder, 85 yards. Pass thrown, there was contact with the quarterback, and it's incomplete. They got pressure on Prescott. It was Adams who came blitzing in. He'll hit immediately when he got the handoff. You know what's <laughs> the Q-inator. Oh my gosh. Listen, thank you. From the TOJ Digital Studios, this is Play Like a Jet. My name is Scott Mason. You can follow me on Twitter at PlayLikeAJet1. And it is Wednesday, so it's time for Midweek with Manish. Manish Mehta, columnist and beat reporter covering the New York Jets for the New York Daily News. And this is part four of our Stories from the Rex Ryan Era series, where we go back and take a look at the time that Rex Ryan was the head coach of the New York Jets and tell some of the more interesting stories from that time period. Remember, we're not doing a game-by-game summary if you want that, especially for the 2009 season, you can go into the archives. We've got Thomas Jones breaking it down game by game. And as we get into the series later on in Rex's tenure, remember, we've got 2011 in the archives with Collision Low Crossers author Nicholas Dawadoff, as well as 2012 with former New York Jets defensive lineman Mike DeVito. But last time we spoke, Manish, we left off talking about week number five, where the New York Jets went down to Miami on Monday night and ended up losing in heartbreaking fashion. The biggest storyline to come out of that one, I thought, in addition to the fact that the Jets had trash-talked all week and then ended up being embarrassed on national TV, the team trash-talking it all was such a huge change from the Eric Mangini era, but also Darrell Rivas getting burned by Ted Ginn and giving up his only touchdown of the season. The following week, though, the Jets would travel back home to take on the Buffalo Bills. It was a notable game at home against the Bills for three reasons. The first was that Mark Sanchez was absolutely horrible. He threw five interceptions in a game that the Jets easily should have won because the Bills were doing next to nothing. Our old friend Ryan Fitzpatrick was having a lot of trouble that day, but he did end up hitting Lee Evans on a 71-yard touchdown pass, and that really was what ended up sending the game in overtime, so the Jets lost, and Mark Sanchez was the biggest reason why. The other two things that I thought were notable were Thomas Jones running for 221 yards on 20 22 carries. This is one of the best performances I ever saw from a running back, period, but especially on the Jets. And the other thing it was notable for was Chris Jenkins getting injured and being out for the rest of the year. So it felt like, in a lot of ways, the heart and soul of the Jets' defense was out, and you had no idea how the Jets were going to respond to it. What do you remember about this game? Because it's a forgettable game in the grand scheme of things, but those three things really stood out to me. Mark Sanchez's limitations were on full display. Thomas Jones's greatness was on full display, and Chris Jenkins getting hurt seemed to take the heart out of the defense. Yeah, the Jenkins injury was really unfortunate. Uh, he had issues before, injury issues before, and uh, I guess it just wasn't meant to be because when he was healthy, he was such a force. Uh, I remember uh, in training camp and practice one-on-one battles that Jenkins had with Nick Mangold. They were so fierce. I think you know, it was probably a 50-50 split in terms of who won those battles. And uh, to see him get hurt and effectively you know, end his time 
was disappointing, really engaging guy, but, uh, you know, from a football perspective, a dominant player. He could be a dominant player, you know, when healthy. And so to see him go down was, was unfortunate. Thomas Jones, that whole season, you know, that, that revival was something to behold. This is a guy who, you know, was a late bloomer. He was a top 10 pick from Arizona, and he really found his stride, uh, you know, with the Jets and with the Bears. And, and uh, you know, he was, in many ways, uh, offensively, the engine. I know the offensive line was really the heart, but uh, in terms of running backs, he was really the – Jones was really, you know, the engine of what made Brian Schottenheimer's offense go. The thing that, however, that sticks out to me that game is Mark Sanchez sitting on a Gatorade uh, tub – kind of with a lost look uh, on his face on the sideline because of what was the worst game of his professional life, the worst game of his football life, you know, no touchdowns, five picks. Uh, he even fumbled the ball. I think he, the Jets recovered, but it, it was a, just a, an absolutely brutal game. He completed about a third of his passes, and he was the reason that they lost. And I remember after that game, uh, waiting for Sanchez in the postgame, and he was sitting in his locker, he had a piece of paper, he was writing stuff down. I had no idea what he was doing. But then he came to the podium and he read off uh, just kind of his summary of the game, uh, explaining the mistakes that he made. Uh, it was really a poor public relations strategy, and I don't know how much the public relations team was involved, if they even knew what Sanchez was doing. And I don't think I've ever seen, to be honest with you, a player do that after a, a loss kind of just jot down a stream of consciousness uh, thoughts on a piece of paper. And he, you know, he just looked like a fish out of water. He had, he got bad advice or he got no advice. Well, whatever it was, I, I really genuinely felt for the guy in that moment because he was lost. He was embarrassed. And I remember when he finished reading uh, whatever he jotted down on that piece of paper he said, uh, you know, he'd open it up for questions, but he didn't quite understand why anyone would have any questions because he already kind of outlined everything that happened in the game. And that, to me, was such a clear sign of a disconnect. You know, a, a young kid really didn't know what he was doing, really didn't understand the dynamics. And I think for the most part, people who covered him that first year understood, you know, the pressure that he was under, uh, understood, uh, you know, everything that was on his shoulders even though, again, he, he wasn't asked to throw the ball 50 times a game, although he actually did throw the ball 50 times a game, uh, I think, uh, in, in his second season in, in a weird game against the Giants. But by and large, you know, he was a caretaker. But still, being the New York Jets quarterback, uh, top 10 pick, there was a lot of pressure on him. And I think he felt that pressure uh, the most after that game. I don't think he quite knew how to respond and uh, – it was unfortunate, uh, you know, he's a, he's a grown man, so you know, he's not a child, so he's ultimately responsible for his own actions. But I thought that approach, the writing stuff down, and just just the, the way he uh, thought he could handle that postgame was the exact wrong way to handle it, and I thought he could have gotten better counsel, better advice from the public relations team at that time, and he did not, uh, uh, you know, just pulling back, the, the curtain a little bit more that first season I thought the Jets frankly did him a disservice by keeping him insulated from the people that saw him every day uh, in, in the media you know there's plenty of stories you can talk to reporters who have been around this team uh, longer than me former 
reporters uh, who covered the Jets, uh, there's nothing more beneficial to a player and a reporter than to have a like a, a decent, normal, functioning, professional relationship. And what I mean by that is that you can go up to a, pl- a player, because look, by and large, the reporters are older than the players. They're certainly older than the, the rookie players. And just have to have that open line of communication, we can go up to a guy in the locker room, you know, you can just BS about whatever. You don't have a recorder you know, stuck in their face. You don't have a notebook out jotting down their every word. Uh, you know, you want players to feel comfortable around you, and you want to feel comfortable around the player. You know, it's a it's a two-way street. And the, the best way to do that is to have normal interaction, the human interaction with them, not necessarily about what the game plan is uh, for the upcoming opponent or what the, the game plan was for the game that just went by. But just to talk about, you know, you know what they do in their free time, uh, do they have plans for the weekend on a Saturday if it's a home game on Sunday, how's their family doing, uh, you know, you can talk to them about your family. It's just basic human interaction so you get a better sense of who the person is. Because who the person is matters when you are covering uh, a team, when you are covering a player. You want to get a sense uh, for who the guy is. So if things aren't going particularly well, maybe there's something happening in their personal life that uh, you know they don't want to share publicly, but it's impacting them. And so you want to be fair to them. And I think as a reporter, that's the number one. The number one thing is that you always want to be fair to somebody. The best way to be fair to someone is not to look at them as as just a quarterback uh, of the New York Jets or a, a cornerback of the New York Jets or just this you know this this thing this image of uh, you know this is a position you know he's a player and that's it he's not a human being you want to get to know the guy you're never going to be best friends with, with the player and I don't think you know anyone uh, you know, has any delusions that you know you would be best friends with a player and vice versa. But you can get to know them on a human level. And unfortunately for Sanchez, in that first season, the Jets really insulated him. They put him in this bubble where you could only talk to him when it was his press uh, media availability time once during the week uh, for 15 minutes. And then when that time was done, uh, he would be shepherded out of the locker room. He had a PR representative who was always by his side. He was like a babysitter. And again, he's not a child. He wasn't five years old. You know, he was 20-something years old. He had played in a big media market in Los Angeles for USC, albeit only for that one season. But he had been around, uh, you know, reporters before. And again, for, uh, you know, I referred to him as a kid at the time because I'm considerably older than he is. But he wasn't a kid. He was still, he was an adult. And I thought that the Jets' public relations staff, unfortunately, treated him like he was a child. And uh, and you didn't really get to know him. I didn't really get to know him until maybe 2010, 2011. And I found him to be a very engaging guy, a really solid guy. But I didn't know him, and I wasn't alone. Everybody else who covered the team really didn't know him because the team thought that shielding him from reporters was the best tack was the best approach. It was actually the exact wrong approach because then a year goes by, there's this weird distance between the player and the people that he sees every day. Just imagine being around, you know, in your locker room for a season, you see the same guys uh, from a distance, but you don't really know them. They don't really know you. 
their whole job is to, to write about you and to talk about you on TV and the radio, but you don't really know them. And, and it was just a very odd choice by the team. I thought it was an absolutely terrible choice by the team. I don't think good public relations staff would have taken that approach. Uh, and, you know, in subsequent years, the Jets have uh, altered that approach to a certain extent. But, uh, you know, I just thought that, you know, cutting Sanchez off from the people that he saw every day uh, and that whose job was to chronicle his every move was a poor decision. And perhaps that played a part in what I thought was a really weird dynamic after that Buffalo game. While sports can bring us so much joy, it can also bring us a lot of unwanted stress. And that stress can make it difficult to concentrate, relax, and get decent sleep. Sunday Scaries was launched in 2017 by two best friends and business partners, Bo Schmidt and Mike Sill. They operated a full-service bar with 50 employees and were always exhausted. They tried all kinds of products, but they didn't work. Then they started experimenting with CBD. They loved the effects and regained control of their days and nights, but they wanted better CBD products. So what they did for themselves was specially formulate CBD gummies with vitamins D3 and B12 that were super consumable, easy to take on the go, and effective. Long story short, their specially formulated CBD products and vitamins helped relieve the overwhelming angst they felt on a daily basis. So in July 2017, they named the company Sunday Scaries and began sharing their products with friends and launched their online store at sundayscaries.com. With tens of thousands of customers, monthly subscribers, and a 100% money-back guarantee, Sunday Scaries has always been on a mission to transform a worrisome nation into a chill one. And right now, we have a bonus for you. Get 25% off all products at sundayscaries.com when you use the code OVERTIME. Again, 25% off all products at sundayscaries.com when you use the code OVERTIME. Hey guys, Greg Peterson here with the Baseball Betting Podcast. As we know, the MLB season is back in our lives. It's going to be a 60-game sprint unlike anything that we've ever seen before. And I'm going to be giving you picks every single day, seven days a week with Major League Baseball. We're also going to be keeping up with the KBO as well. If you like baseball and you like being able to make some money, subscribe to the Baseball Betting Podcast with Greg Peterson on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, this is Greg Peterson, host of the podcast Hoopin' with Hoops. Despite the fact that college basketball is in the offseason, it's never too early to get a jump start on taking a look at these teams because there is now 357 of them for the upcoming 2020-2021 college basketball season. I'm going to give you guys a deep dive on every last one of them, keep up with all the transfers in college basketball, and so much more. You are able to subscribe to Hoopin' with Hoops on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, or wherever you get your podcasts. Play like a jet. Play like a jet. Manish, you said that the PR staff in a lot of ways was treating Sanchez like a child. Rex Ryan had to also because it was a few weeks from this point that they had to start using the color-coded wristband because Sanchez was turning the ball over so much. I'm sure this is something that wasn't all that uncommon that had been done a lot with quarterbacks, especially young ones that were struggling with turnovers. But because this was New York and because this was Mark Sanchez and Rex Ryan and there was so much attention, this became something that took on a life of its own. And in a lot of ways, to me, this was Mark Sanchez's seeing ghosts moment because the same thing happened with Sam Darnold where he was caught on Mike saying something that I'm sure a ton of quarterbacks over the years have said, especially against a defense as good as the New England Patriots. It just happened to get caught on Mike. What do you remember about this? Because this had to be an interesting story for you to report at the time. 
I thought it was probably embarrassing for him. It was a kind of a dumbing down of the offense. Uh, I know that Sanchez, you know, had some difficulty absorbing the the weekly game plan that Brian Schottenheimer gave him. And I think looking back, uh, you know, if you asked Shotty now, could he have done things differently in terms of preparing Sanchez week in and week out? Maybe he, you know, he would admit that. He overloaded Sanchez. I know that Sanchez felt overloaded uh, in terms of information. Uh, I don't know if that was on the play caller. I don't know if that was on the player's ability or lack of ability to absorb a lot of information. You know, probably a little bit of both, to be honest with you. But uh, as you touched on, the turnovers needed to stop. So the Jets needed to do something to curtail that. He had already had games. Uh, I talked about that Saint game. We had four turnovers. He had. He had uh, five turnovers, as I mentioned, against Buffalo. He had another five-turnover game against the Patriots. So when they went to that color-coded system late in November, it actually worked out. Uh, and I don't know if it was because of the, the wristband or if it was because uh, the Jets kind of tinkered their, you know, their philosophy because they did win five of their last six games. Now, Sanchez did not play one of those games at Tampa because he was injured, but Sanchez won – four of his last five games in the regular season. And if you look a little bit deeper at each of those games, uh, he did not attempt more than, this is remarkable to think about, but he didn't attempt more than 20 passes in four of those five games. And the only game that he attempted more than 20, actually attempted 32, was their only loss. (laughs) It It was that infamous loss at home against the Falcons. But by and large, uh, it was it was you know run left run right run right up the middle uh, for for the better part of that last month of the season that ultimately helped them get into the playoffs. Sanchez only uh, attempted you know I'm looking at the numbers 17, 15, 19, and 16 passes in 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 those four wins. So clearly they did not win because of Mark Sanchez. They won because of their defense and their run game. But uh, you know simplifying the offense in his mind and categorizing. Uh, from series to series, what plays were red, uh, yellow, and uh, uh, red, yellow, and green were, uh, I guess, a a way for him to understand when he could take chances, when when he could be, you know, be ultra-aggressive, when he should be cautious, or when he should just really be conservative. Uh, You know, you mentioned the, the uh, the, the Sam Darnold seeing ghost moment, uh, I, you know, I, I guess so. Uh, you know, it wasn't caught on tape uh, where Rex Ryan is telling Mark Sanchez, "Hey, we're going to dumb this down for you." If that had been, if that had been the case, that'd been really embarrassing. But you know, the notion of trying to streamline things for him in his mind uh, made sense for me. But uh, you know, it, it is embarrassing. It essentially is admitting that your quarterback, you know, needs to dumb down the offense. You know, typically quarterbacks don't want that to get out there. Uh, what's What's even more interesting to me is that several years later, when Geno Smith was having his issues, the Jets contemplated doing that, that you know, that wristband as well with Rex. So, uh, you know, I, did the wristbands work? I don't know. I, I think it was more a product of really reeling things back and, and leaning even more on the run game on offense and hoping the defense continued to be lights out. Uh, instead of Sanchez airing it out, uh, you know, keeping things close to the vest seemed to work for that for that team and that offense that year. So uh, it made for a really 
a weird story for sure, and I'm sure that Sanchez, you know, would tell you that it embarrassed him. He never told me that, but I just think somebody in his position, uh, you know, would be embarrassed if your, you know, if your coach says, "Well, we don't really trust you, so we're going to kind of break this down and do stuff at an elementary level." So that you take care, better care of the ball, and by and large, I thought he took care of the ball really well uh, outside of the Falcon game. The Falcon game is when he had the the three interceptions, but you know, in the other games, uh, he only had one interception, uh, and it was the first game that they used that color coded system against Carolina, a game that they won. Uh, he didn't have an interception in, in any of those other games outside of that Falcon loss. So, uh, you know, you could make a case that it worked. Uh, I'm a little bit more skeptical. I think that the, the game planning and, uh, you know, not allowing Sanchez to air it out was probably the number one reason why they won a lot of those games. I wanted to talk about the following week against the Raiders. The Jets blew out the Raiders, but the real story there was Hot Dog Gate. This is another strange <laughs> one, and it's one that you never would have heard about back before all the cameras and all the attention and and now with social media I can't even imagine what things would have been like because Twitter wasn't really blown up yet in 2009 if it was the way it is now forget about it you would have seen a million clips all over the place but talk to me about this because this was such a non-story to me it was just a guy that was hungry and was trying to get in a snack on the sideline but because it got caught on camera I think it took on a life of its own and it was taken to mean something that it really wasn't intended to mean. I mean, the guy was hungry. Is, do people not eat on the sidelines? I, I, I really, I don't know. I'm trying to think. I'm going back now quickly and trying to think on random games. Are guys, I mean, look, they're not having a, like a, a full course meal. You know, you know, they're not, they're not doing that. But I think guys like, get snacks and, and they eat and a hot dog in many ways is a snack. I think what made it worse for Sanchez was that he secretly tried to eat the hot dog. I, I would have just embraced the moment, stood on the sideline, uh, had the hot dog. And when people asked about it, just say, Hey, I was hungry. Not a big deal. Uh, but yeah, that got blown up. I don't quite understand why it became such a story to be honest with you. I never thought it was a big deal. He was eating a hot dog. I, I don't know. I didn't think it was a big deal. What I do remember from that game and what Sanchez uh, often refers back to, uh, that game, uh, there was a moment which really uh, typified how important Nick Mangold was to Mark Sanchez because he came to the line. Uh, they were inside the 10-yard line, I believe. He didn't really understand the, what he saw in Oakland's defense. And so he got to the line and he said, Nikki, you know, what, what do you got? Where, you know, where should we run? It was a run play, I believe, to Sean Green. And uh, Mangold kind of tapped uh, his left or his right thigh. can't remember exactly which, but it basically directed Sanchez to call run play to that side because Mangold had recognized what he was seeing in front of him when Sanchez was still learning uh, you know, to read defenses and decipher defenses. And that was one of the... Uh, the invaluable parts of having Nick Mangold for Mark Sanchez, so understanding protections and making uh, adjustments when you get to the line, and and that's why you know just to fast forward to this past year, when the Jets signed Ryan Khalil, I thought he could provide the same type of assistance for for Sam Darnold in terms of you know making quick adjustments in game in the moment. Uh, you know, obviously, that didn't come to fruition. But for Sanchez back in 2009 and even 2010, 
Mangold was that you know, that that helper, that that aid to to bring him along and to develop him uh, in the moment. And uh, you know that is a story that Sanchez has told me many times. Uh, you know that moment was really something that he will always remember when he looks back on his time with Nick Mangold. Uh, just how important uh, a veteran center can be for a young quarterback. So people will remember the hot dog game, and I'm sure I'm in the minority because when I think of that game, the first memory that jumps to my mind is that moment when Mangold helped out Sanchez uh, on a play that ultimately led to a touchdown run. I'm not surprised because Gerard Mayo, the former linebacker from the New England Patriots, told a story years ago about how when they would play the Jets, they would start yelling random things to try and confuse Sanchez because they all knew that Mangold was the one that was calling out the protections. And that was how they would get to Sanchez typically. And perhaps that was part of the strategy that led them to win the rematch against the Jets in Week 11 because as we move forward, Manish, the Jets would go up and down, up and down. There would be a three-game losing streak involved. And then we would get to the next notable event in the season here, Manish, which was Week 13 against the Buffalo Bills. The Jets win to go to 6-6. Six and six. So like I said, very up and down at this point. But the reason that it was notable is because Mark Sanchez got injured in this game on a head-first slide, which is an absolute no-no, especially for a quarterback. And then after this, the Jets did something that was a little bit out of the box. They brought in Joe Girardi, who was managing the Yankees at the time, to come in and teach Mark Sanchez how to slide, which I thought was humorous. Tell me about what you remember about the Sanchez injury, how upset they were about him getting himself hurt with that reckless slide, and then Joe Girardi coming in because they were pulling out all the stops to try and teach Sanchez how to slide properly. I like the Joe Girardi element of it now. Sanchez had knee issues. Uh, I don't remember if it was like a partial dislocation or some kind of meniscus damage because he had a, a knee brace that he played with, I believe, uh, in that final season at USC. Uh, it, it's it's kind of like what you see from young quarterbacks now. Not every young quarterback, but Carson Wentz comes to mind. You know, These guys are young, uh, seemingly indestructible in their minds. And they don't, you know, they don't look at the bigger picture when they're in the moment. They're trying to get an extra yard, and and I know that people weren't happy with Sanchez doing that, uh, you know, and, and it was the wrong thing to do in hindsight. But I like the aggressiveness, and I'm in the minority, and I'm probably wrong on this. Uh, you know, I, I think I've kind of changed my mind when it comes to Carson Wentz. Uh, you know, I think that part of what made Wentz who he who he was was you know that type of attitude, that type of aggressiveness, but there is a fine line and you do have to keep the bigger picture in mind, but the Joe Girardi story was, was great. I mean, why, why not have uh, Girardi come in and, and teach a guy how to slide? And I know that it was received really well by Sanchez, and I'm trying to think, you know, the remainder of that season, the following seasons, if Sanchez actually, I, I'm pretty sure that Sanchez, by and large, uh, you know, took those words of wisdom and became uh, a feet-first slider um, moving forward in his career. I don't remember him doing a lot of reckless things after that, but, uh, you know, I'd actually, until you mentioned it, I'd actually forgot about that. There's so many different things that happen during the 2009 season. The Joe Girardi uh, part of the equation escaped my mind. But, yeah, I remember uh, Sanchez having issues with his, his, with his knees, uh, dating back to college, and uh, yeah, Rex wasn't particularly pleased with it. Uh, otherwise, you know, why bring in uh, Joe Girardi to kind of 
snuff out the problem. But I, I think by and large it worked. The following week, Sanchez didn't play. It was Kellen Clemens playing against a really bad Tampa Bay team, and the Jets won in blowout fashion 26-3, largely because of the running game, which, as you said, Manish, had been the formula. But I thought it was interesting because the Jets were clearly terrified of Kellen Clemens here, and it made you think back to the quarterback competition in the first place and the fact that they didn't really have any legitimate competition for Mark Sanchez because nobody expected Kellen Clemens to beat him out, and of course he didn't. Did this cement to you at the time that the Jets should have done a better job of getting a real competition for Sanchez so that Sanchez could ensure that he was ready to start from day one and be somebody that would have been better insurance in case something like this happened to Sanchez? Because as I said, they're lucky they were playing Tampa Bay who couldn't get out of their own way at the time. Kellen Clemens looked like a lost puppy dog out there and the Jets clearly didn't trust him to do anything. Yeah, I don't remember what the backup quarterback market was back in 2009. And to be honest with you, I didn't think that Clemens back you know, in August would have been a bad backup option. Uh, so I don't remember thinking the Jets are making a big mistake here. Uh, what I do remember thinking was that the competition was uh, a little bit fugazi. It was never really a competition. The Jets really just needed to see enough out of Mark Sanchez in the preseason to make him the week one starter uh, in barring some kind of horrific preseason uh, performances. He was going to be the week one starter. And I remember the first pass that he completed, like a deep pass to David Clowney. And I thought, okay, well that, that should show up the competition, even though I think that was week one of the preseason. But uh, I remember thinking that it wasn't a real competition. What I don't remember is what other possible options were out there for the Jets, uh, now, Sanchez had been doing, uh, you know, as we said, okay, and he was the rookie. They were winning games for the most part. Uh, and, uh, sure, when you saw Kellen Cummins play late in that season against Tampa, he looked terrible. Uh, <laughs> I mean, he was really bad. Uh, but I, I don't remember thinking coming out of that game uh, that the Jets screwed up because they should have signed a better backup, only because I don't remember what the other options were. Uh, Mark Sanchez is going to be your franchise quarterback for the next few years at the very least. He's going to be your starter. And, uh, you know, criticizing after the fact that they made a mistake by not bringing in someone many months earlier in free agency to be a better backup. I mean, that's hindsight. Uh, there's a lot of things to criticize the team for during that season. But, uh, you know, I, I don't think it would have been necessarily fair to say that they, they definitively screwed up back uh, in March when free agency happened because I don't remember I mean, they hadn't even drafted Sanchez at that point so I, I don't know what realistically the Jets could have done or who they could have brought in to, to be a markedly better backup than Kellen Clemens. The following week the Jets would lose to go to 7-7 seven and seven, and this was one that they blew in the fourth quarter Matt Ryan connected with Tony Gonzalez on a touchdown pass to give the Falcons the 10-7 lead that would hold up the rest of the way but that's not really what was notable about this. What was notable was after the game, the press conference that Rex Ryan held, he declared that the Jets were out of the playoff race, but they weren't. So somebody had to tell Rex Ryan that mathematically they were actually still alive. What do you remember about this? Because this is still something that Jets fans look back at and now knowing how it turned out, laugh about. But at the time, it was a really strange declaration by Rex. 
It was. I think that Rex, however, was saying what everybody else was feeling. Now, mathematically, he was wrong, and ultimately he was proven wrong due to some really odd circumstances in the next couple weeks. But, yeah, at 7-7, seven and seven, I think every Jet fan who saw Tony Gonzalez catch that touchdown with a minute or so thought, that's it, you know, our, 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 our chances are, are slim to none. We're 7-7. Seven and seven. We've got the undefeated Colts uh, that we have to travel to the following week. Uh, and then we got a Bengal team that's going to make the playoffs. So the, the odds were slim. I don't know if any other dynamics were at play at that moment when they after they went seven and seven, fell to seven and seven. But Rex was pretty much saying what I think every Jet fan was feeling, which was it's over. We're, we're not going to win. Now he's the head coach. He obviously cannot say that, uh, and it makes for a funny story now, only because they got into the playoffs and then went deep into the playoffs because of Indianapolis's decision to to rest Peyton Manning in the second half and their starters and the Jets got what amounted to uh, a free win, I think, that week. And then, then they got even an easier win the, in the season finale when the Bengals were locked into their playoff position, had nothing to play for, knew that they were going to play the Jets, uh, or, you know, assuming that they lost, knew that they were going to play the Jets the following week. So... Uh, just an odd dynamic in those final two games, but Rex was just saying what was on everyone else's mind, that it was a hell of a nice run in his first year, but the postseason wasn't meant to be. And again, due to some really odd circumstances over the final two games, the Jets snuck in. Those were indeed odd circumstances that led to the Jets getting into the playoffs in 2009. So we'll talk about that when we resume this series with part five next week. In the meantime, make sure that you are following Manish on Twitter and reading him in the daily news. And if you missed any of the podcasts that we put out the last couple of days, I highly suggest that you check them out. John Grello was on the show yesterday to contribute to the offseason roundtable. Always great to hear from John. Not only about what the Jets are doing in the 2020 offseason, but anything involving PR. Because remember, when it comes to how the players, the coaches, executives, ownership, any of those guys handle the media, John was director of communications for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers for three years. So he knows exactly how to see through all of the fog and give you the straight story. So that was a fun podcast yesterday. Then on Monday, if you missed it, we did part three of the Sam Darnold project, taking an in-depth look at every single game that Sam Darnold has played so far in his young career. Every single play was looked at, and each game individually was graded by Michael. We went through the criteria, and now we're going through all of the games. We are up to game seven through nine of his rookie season 2018. So if you missed that, you definitely want to check it out. And over the weekend, we did some great mailbag episodes with Chris Nimbley. As always, a lot of fun. So if you missed that with all the Super Bowl mania, go ahead and check it out. And also, if you haven't had a chance to give this show or Joe Caparoso's Turn on the Jets podcast a five-star review on iTunes, we'd really appreciate it if you could do that for us. It's an easy way to help out the show if you like what we're doing. It doesn't cost you any money. It doesn't take you much time, but it's a big help to us. So if you could do that, we'd really be grateful. And it does a lot to allow us to continue to bring you the latest and greatest, the New York Jets podcasts. And for that, you know where to go. That's Turn on the Jets Digital and TurnOnTheJets.com.